Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. My name is Scott Wiley and you're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a true 80s classic starring one of the most legendary people to ever do it. I think it's fair to say that Sylvester Stallone's legacy when it comes to action films does not need an introduction. The film we're going to be talking about today is 1986's Cobra, The film actually has kind of an interesting backstory into how it was originally brought into existence, as some people listening will probably already know that it shares some of its DNA with uh, another film that starred an 80s legend, Eddie Murphy, called Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop came out in 1984, so it predated this film, but when it was originally in production, it wasn't actually Eddie Murphy that they had in mind for the role. They were originally going with something slightly different, and they wanted it to be Sylvester Stallone. Now, as talks went on, essentially what Stallone wanted it to be, and what the people making the film wanted it to be, as you can tell by, you know, the two films are available to compare, they were very, very different. Stallone wanted a very dark, very gritty, you know, super serious character that was very much a a guy up against a broken system, you know, breaking all the rules. Very much like an 80s version of Dirty Harry, in my opinion. And Beverly Hills Cop, you know, is not that. And obviously, Eddie Murphy probably did help shape the role more around his style of comedy. But there was still a serious character underneath it all, especially in the first film. And it had a lot to say about some very different issues. And I think that Both films are good in their own rights. Beverly Hills Cop and its sequel will definitely be something that we talk about in the future. And Cobra essentially being a Stallonified version of what Beverly Hills Cop started as, or an idea that they both kind of sprung from the same sort of thoughts, is really interesting to see how people can come up with two very different but also very similar projects. The film was also uh, kind of interesting to rewatch because it stars Sylvester Stallone and it's directed by George P. Cosmatos, even though Stallone had a big hand in a lot of the decisions being made because, you know, he was also one of the film's writers because, as I said, he wanted the idea to be basically what he was talking about. And it was based upon the novel Fair Game. Though, by all accounts, I I will admit I haven't read it, the word loosely based definitely applies here. The film also stars Bridget Nielsen, and at the time, she was married to Sylvester Stallone. As you will hear us discuss a little bit later, yeah, this, this entire film feels very much like Sylvester Stallone is in charge, and this is his project and his baby, and everybody else is either a friend, something he personally owns, such as the car that he drives in the film, or his wife playing his girlfriend in the film. So, yeah, everything about this screams Stallone. 
My guest for this episode is a lovely lady by the name of Jessica Scott. Yes, I find it hilarious that it's Scott Wiley and Jessica Scott talking about Cobra. So, you know, if if people like this episode, she can definitely come back just so I can keep making that joke again. But you probably are familiar with her, given that she is an incredibly talented writer. She is an editor for the film site Film Cred. She's written for Slash Film, Dread Central, Fangoria, Inverse.com. I'm pretty confident I'm right in saying that she's um, very big in the world of film critique. And I have to give a special shout out and a big thanks for Jessica for not only coming on, but actually being like very positive and wanting to come on. She said something a while back that kind of triggered this conversation, which is that because she often writes about horror films, a lot of people only want her to talk about horror stuff. And I kind of related to that because I think, as we talked about in our Jean-Paul Lee episode, people like having labels for folk. You do this thing or you do that thing. So I'll call you for that specific thing. Or I just won't call you because you're doing your own thing. And it's like, nah, I, I, I like a lot of different things. I don't just live in action films. Jessica doesn't just live in horror films. And stunt guys don't just have to be stunt guys. And just because I do my own podcast doesn't mean I'm not happy to come on other people's and I don't enjoy, you know, talking about action films and other people's shows or talking about science fiction like I did with Lindsay on her show, Schlock and All. So I really wanted Jessica to come on and talk about action films and I had an absolute blast and I really hope that she will come back. Um, I think you guys are really going to enjoy our conversation. We felt very similar about the film and it was a, it was a very interesting rewatch, so... I hope you guys are excited for this. Um, I will just add as well that the next couple of weeks, I'm not actually physically going to be home because uh, I'm going back to see my folks. So I'm recording a lot of this in advance, whereas normally I would record these much closer to the time. So you'll just have to bear with me if the intros sound a bit different to normal because I'm kind of trying to like bulk record all of my intros. <laughs> but with that said, I'll hand you over to Jessica and myself so that you can hear us talk about Cobra. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. We're back. We're live in the room. And today we are joined by a brand new voice to the show, which I'm very excited about. Hello there, Jessica. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here. Yay. I like it when people are thrilled to be here. It's much better than <laughs> than, than disappointment. That's the worst <laughs> expression I could hope for. So, no, far from it. For the people who may not be familiar with you, would you care to give yourself a summarized introduction just so that people know whom you are? Yes, um, I'm Jessica Scott. I'm a film critic and writer. I primarily write about horror. Um, um, I work on Slash Film, Daily Grindhouse, Film Cred, my own site, We Who Walk Here. Um, I'm also a podcaster. You can mostly hear me on The Pod and the Pendulum, where I'm part of a rotating crew of co-hosts. Um, and yeah, but I love talking about all movies, though I usually talk about horror, so I'm really excited to be able to branch out a little bit from my preferred genre today. Yes, I think that's what actually started the conversation. I, I, I have this vague memory of you tweeting out something to that effect of, you know, I like to talk about things other than horror. And I was <laughs> like, would you like to talk action films? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was very excited. I love action. I, I won't be 
the biggest expert you've spoken to, but I'm a big enthusiast. I'll say that. I, you know, I've said this to a few other people as well, and I'll re-say it for people who are maybe tuning in for the first time or have missed a few episodes. I deliberately don't just want the cream of the crop action diehards, of which I don't count myself as one, which might surprise people who listen to the show, because there are definitely people that I follow who know, like, you know, give them a time code in freaking hard boiled and they'll tell you what scene I'm talking about. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not that of a, of a expert, but I want to have people on that cover all bases. I've had people coming on that don't have a clue, like they're watching something for the first time who are maybe not as familiar with action films, depending on what type of film we're talking about. We've got enthusiasts, and then we've got uh, a couple of people that I would class as experts, and then obviously we have people that have worked in the industry, and a bunch of people that kind of fit in between all of those. But I feel like it's important to do that because I don't know if you like feel the same way as maybe when you're talking about horror, but I feel like if you get a bunch of people who constantly meet up who are all action film enthusiasts or experts, depending on what they want to call themselves, they are not necessarily going to value the same things that the average consumer watching a film is going to. And it's very easy to get caught up in the minutiae and the details and go, this is like a masterpiece, and then watch that masterpiece be not well liked at all by general <laughs> moviegoers. And I, that disconnect is what I very much want to avoid, because I see that a lot with certain critics and reviewers where what they're interested in the film is not what the vast majority of its audience are. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. So, the film we're going to be talking about, as I will have already said in the intro, is 1986's Cobra, and it stars Sylvester Stallone and Bridget Nielsen. And this was actually your suggestion, if I remember correctly, so I was wondering, why? What about this film in particular drew you to it? Well, this was a first-time watch for the podcast. I had not seen Cobra. Uh, but the poster and the tagline drew me in immediately. I thought, oh, I have to see this movie. And I was not disappointed. I had a blast with it. Um, but, you know, Stallone holding up the, the, the gun that's also a flamethrower or a, a torch or something, holding up the gun with his very cool fit with the matchstick in his mouth, the sunglasses on, crime is a disease, meet the cure. I just, I was sold. I had to watch that movie. I, I like the. I, I agree with everything you're saying, but there's a part of me that can't help but go, you had to see it so much that you waited until 2023 to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many movies like that, though. Like, there are so many movies, not just in action, but in any genre, that I think, oh, God, I have to see that movie. And I just have not seen them yet because there are so many movies to see. No, I, I that pain I do definitely share, and I'm happy mm -hmm. that we could give you a good excuse to bump it up the list, because I, <laughs> I definitely think Cobra is a classic. It's actually kind of funny, um, because obviously that you do tend to talk about horror more, that you've kind of gravitated towards a film that I would argue has a lot of horror elements in it, and definitely kind of wears its horror influences on its sleeve. Um, that's just my opinion when I rewatched it uh, uh, yesterday. I, I really noticed a lot of the sort of slasher horror movie stuff seeping through a lot more than I did when I watched this as a kid. Because at that point, yeah. I wasn't really... Uh, I didn't really watch horror films growing up. I, I saw a couple, but that's more of a much... That's a much more recent sort of 
indulgence, whereas action films I've always watched from day zero. Yeah, 100%. No, I had no idea there were horror elements to it or that it had that kind of slasher format a bit to it. Um, I was kind of pleasantly surprised because I love action horror hybrids. I think Surviving the, Ca- Surviving the Game is one of my favorites, and I think there's a, quite a bit of horror influence in there, obviously with the most dangerous game um, being the source material. Um, yes. So I, that was a pleasant surprise for me that it was kind of an action horror hybrid, though it, it was not intentional on my part when I chose the movie. Well, no, that's that's what's so funny is when you said it was a first time watch, I assumed that that was uh, part of the reason why you were drawn to it. But uh, then when you gave your your intro, I was like, oh, okay, clearly not. That was a happy accident. (laughs) It was. (laughs) So uh, now that you have seen it, and I think you may have just given this next question away, but as this was the first time watch for you, what was your immediate reaction when you were finished it? I I was shocked by it. I I mean not by the violence though it is very violent even for an action movie, but there's a a stylishness to it and a I I was talking about it on Twitter last night someone referred to it as kind of an MTV style of directing. There's it feels like every shot they ask themselves what is the coolest possible way to achieve this shot and they did that for every single shot. There's a a an energy and a speed that I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about the editing and some of the cuts that had to be made. Um, but it just, it's, it's really striking. It's, I, I like the, I like the frenetic energy. I know it's, um, it might do a disservice to the plot at times, but I just, I, I loved it. I had so much fun with it. I, uh, this is a brand new, drop what you're doing if this comes on TV and watch Cobra. This is one of those movies for me now. Yeah, I think that's a perfect, perfect summarization of a lot of people's first times with this film. I can remember when I first watched it because, like I said, I watched this when I was, uh, well, a kid might be, might be overselling it, but I was young. <laughs> and um, I remember like my dad was like really hyping this film up. Like he, he was saying, you know, when this film came out, it was, super violent and people really didn't like it because it like pushed things too far and then we watched it and he was like that was nowhere near as bad as i remember (laughs) (laughs) but it it just goes to show how like as time went on like especially with what would come in the 90s like what used to be considered super violent in the 80s became like what was that man but (laughs) it it, it's true though i i genuinely had forgotten how good some of the scenes in this are especially the car stuff the, you know, I I didn't remember this one being like heavy action in terms of like fight scenes, which is true, but the actual like car chase sequence and the tension and the way it gives you this really grimy, horrible world that they all live in and the commentary that they're trying to make on the state of the system, it, you know, it, it's a really weird melding pot of they're trying to say something, but at the same time, look at the shiny car that Stallone owns yeah. and, you know, <laughs> things go boom. It's... It, I like it, but I could see why as times got on, you know, it's one of those films that was really popular, then it wasn't, and then it was like, oh, if you like Cobra, you know, whatever, and then suddenly it's come back around to, oh yeah, Cobra's like the epitome of cool, man, like, that's, that's, (laughs) if you want to watch a film that encapsulates the 1980s, then, you know, Cobra's the one, and yeah, Mm -hmm. I do love, find it funny how parts of this film just turn into a music video. Yeah, absolutely. And there were times 
um, you know, obviously I, I noticed George P. Cosmatos' name. There were times when the neons, I thought, oh, this is Mandy. This is his son's film. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I just, I really loved the way it looked. I, again, I'm not saying that um, the editing did it favors narratively necessarily. Again, because of the cuts that they had to make for, I think it was an X rating before they cut things down. Um, and also they cut it um, to be able to fit in more screenings to um, compete with other films at the multiplex. But I'm just, I find it really fascinating and it's, it's just really compelling and really some of the tones that Stallone is going for, like some of the really deadpan humor really worked for me. I, I can see why it wouldn't work for everybody, but I just really enjoyed it. No, I agree. I mean, obviously George and Stallone had worked together literally the year before on Rambo first blood part mm -hmm. two. And it, it, so it doesn't surprise me that they've gone so well together. I would love to see that, that, like you say, that unrated version, because I think it would maybe flow a bit better, but I still really enjoyed yeah. the finished version that, that we got. Um, mm -hmm. it is funny though, like Cobra is the, the definition of a film that exists because of Sylvester Stallone. I mean, <laughs> so much of this film's backstory is baked into because Stallone wanted it to be. I mean, the, his, the, the woman that plays his love interest in the film, was Bridget Nielsen, who at the time was his wife. Uh, mm -hmm. The car he drives in the film it was his car at the time, uh, Mercury 1950. And the film itself only exists because he was originally going to do Beverly Hills Cop, didn't like its tone and wanted it to be ultra-violent and gritty. And they were like, no. So he basically went off and went, fine, I'm going to make my own version of it. And it became Cobra. So it's like... Every part of this film is basically just Stallone going, I want to do this. And everyone went, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> and it works because I love those movies that are genuinely weird because they show off the personalities of the people driving the movie. You know, like some movies are weird by committee where they're trying to be quirky in a self-conscious way. But this is just Stallone being Stallone and... I'm obsessed with this car because I think in any other movie it would be like a late 60s, early 70s muscle car. But he's got this unique early 50s, you know, classic that shows he's a throwback. And I'm just obsessed with all those little details that are so peculiar just to him. Yeah. Well, it's the fact that it was his actual car as well that just made me laugh yeah. because <laughs> rewatching it this time... um. I immediately noticed how similar it is to the car that he has his character drive in Expendables. Like, the interior mm -hmm. is so similar. The engine sound is almost identical. The shape of the vehicle, it's not the same, um, but it is so similar. And it's that same era, that same classic car design and look. So he clearly has a thing for those sorts of classic cars from the 50s. And mm -hmm. like you say, when the personality of the people shine through, whether or not it makes the film better is a, a question for other people, but it definitely allows it to be unique, which I think when people look back at films, whether it's because it was bad or good, I think if it's memorable, a lot of the times it's because the people involved were able to do more than just follow the script. And when newer generations look back on films that maybe people at the time wrote off I think that happens a lot where it's like the weird ones are what people 
gravitate towards after the fact, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, like if I if you just showed this to somebody and said, Tell me what this movie is, they would probably be probably be able to tell you that is a nineteen eighty six action movie. Like they would be able to tell you what year and everything, but it's still unlike anything I had seen before. Which I love. Like it you know, it hit a lot of you know, the typical action beats, but it's just it's got a strangeness to it that I really responded to. Yeah. No, I agree. It's um it's it starts really well. When it opens and you get that commentary from Cobretti who is doing the, you know the tagline and he's you know the city is horrible and he ramps off statistics that might have been true at the time I don't know about how horrible the place is to live and then you get the the hatchet clanging and the music and there's a heartbeat and then it goes straight into a crime and my brain was going you know what makes this even more funny to watch in retrospect is everything about this opening if the words Judge Dread rolled on next, <laughs> you've completely nailed the tone of what that film should have been, and you did it years earlier. Like, you had the formula right here. <laughs> Cobra is a better Dread. <laughs> <laughs> or at least that's what I think, but... um, No, I'm with you on that. <laughs> the other thing that, that I really, really can't help but laugh at, and... Uh, I, this might be more of a me thing, but I had completely forgotten that Detective Monty is played by Andrew Robinson. And he being the calm, I won't say kind, because as the film goes on, he kind of proves he isn't. <laughs> but he mm. is supposed to be the like civilized negotiator, the guy that has all of the like, at the time, up to date tactics, the psychological person that believes in you know, CSI work over kicking indoors. And the reason why that's so funny to me is because obviously he was the serial killer in Dirty Harry. And now he's playing the complete polar opposite of that character. But also, from my love of sci-fi, I know him best as Garrick from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And seeing him Mm -hmm. sort of like, at times, aspects of both of those other characters come out in his performance as Monty. I I love Brian Thompson, and I will definitely give him praise, but there was a specific point in the movie where Stallone is trying to be more intimidating than Andrew Robinson, and, you know, Stallone is a big, muscular guy, but all Andrew has to do is smile at him through his teeth, and I know which one I'm more afraid of. And it's like, <laughs> he is scarier when he's trying to be nice than any of the bad guys in this film. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's such a, like, one thing I love about Hades action in particular is just the wealth of character actors that show up. And he, that's such a perfect marriage of, like, sci-fi action and horror, because he's also Larry in Hellraiser. Mm, mm. Um, And it's just all of that history. Obviously, you know, Hellraiser and DS9 came afterwards, but all that history, when you're watching it today, kind of jumps in and you zero in on him as being the character to fear, as you say. So, yeah, I'm with you 100% on that, too. <laughs> well, the thing is, is because as I was watching it, I'd realized how much I'd forgotten. Like, I, I knew the basic principle, and I remembered the big end fight. And I'd remembered that, you know, it's a serial killer-ish, 
And there's lots of, well, how I remember being gruesome deaths, but again, you don't really see a lot of it, but it's, you know, you know what's happening. But when it got to the, the that argument, that midway point where they really go at each other, I actually made a note because I genuinely couldn't remember how the film ended after the fight. I, I actually wrote down, he is like going out of his way to basically block Cobretti and the zombie squad and he's constantly putting up obstacles and whenever they offer an intelligent good bit of police work in my opinion as to you know well headquarters called away the policeman and there's someone on the inside and all of this stuff you'd think somebody that was established to be his character would immediately pick that up and be like right i might not admit it to marion but i'm gonna go look into this and get to the bottom of how this keeps happening but he doesn't. He just keeps dismissing it, keeps making everybody else laugh at him. And I actually wrote down, mm. like, is he the twist villain? Like, is he the leader of the cult? <laughs> is this where this is going? Because I almost feel like that's where it was going. And then at the last minute, they decided not to because his character just kind of is so weird. You know, <laughs> even at the end of the film, yeah. he refuses to, like, lament and be like, oh, sorry, mate. I guess I got this a bit wrong. He, even when he tries to like apologize, he just doesn't. He just doubles down on insults. It's just, I don't know. It just feels like such a weird character arc. Yeah, I thought I thought I read that he originally was. That was the twist in the original version of the script, or you know, one of the versions, because it went through so many iterations, starting with the Beverly Hills Cop thing, and then. But he was supposed to be the leader of the cult or part of the cult. So I think that twist is still baked in, and they didn't rewrite it enough to make his character make sense. Uh, or they were trying to kind of a mishmash of kind of indicting the police force while at the same time celebrating the good ones in the force. Um, so I think there is a couple of different things going on there with regard to that. So uh, because I had like the, the, the trivia stuff open in front of me, as soon as you said that, I, I searched for Andrew Robinson's name and you are 100% right. Uh. <laughs> Apparently... Uh, that was exactly what was going to be revealed, that Andrew Robinson was indeed the twist villain and he was supposed to have this big tattoo and then uh, Stallone was going to figure it out and kill him. And then apparently it was actually Andrew that uh, said that they'd killed so many people in this film that it kind of takes away from those moments and this bit just doesn't feel as big. So they suggested that they just have this scene where he gets punched out and put back in his place sort of thing. And I was like, as much as I, you know, it works, I kind of was like, but you kind of, you kind of built up to him not really being all there. I kind of wanted to see that mm. myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, that's, that's, a, that's a small nitpick. But uh, so mm. that's Andrew Robinson. But like we said, he's not actually the, the, the lead villain. The lead villain is actually the always incredible and incapable of looking like a normal human being, Brian Thompson. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a film where he just looks like he's sat there chilling. He always looks like there is something going on behind his eyes and you do not want to know what that something is. Yeah, even if you look at his, you know, CV, picture on his CV where he's just a normal guy, you think, oh, he's up to something. I don't know, obviously, how many other films of, of his that you've seen and how, or projects, but is, are you quite familiar with other work that he's done? He is, um, he's a, hey, it's that guy for me, where I couldn't, 
if you said, hey, what do you know Brian Thompson from? I wouldn't be able to rattle off a list. But as soon as I saw his picture, I, um, as an older actor, because I've seen him in more recent things, I thought, ah, of course, that's who that is. Um, so, you know, you're totally right about he he never seems quite right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's funny, too, because uh, this was 1986. So, yeah, a couple years earlier in 1984, he is the guy that Arnold Schwarzenegger steals the clothes from in the original Terminator. And the funny thing is, is that mm-hmm. the person in that scene with him is Bill Paxton. So I, I always find it funny going back and rewatching these films and seeing people when they was just kind of starting out and. You know, it's just like two years after he basically had a cameo, well, not a cameo, but as a guy just literally with the name of Punk. And then suddenly he's like <laughs> the lead villain in a Sylvester Stallone movie. And I think he was a villain in a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. You know, it's a, it's one of those things. I mean, I unfortunately know him for, for all the wrong reasons. I mean, he he's done good stuff as well. He was on Buffy the Vampire Slayer as the judge, but... I know him as Shao Kahn from Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which will forever be the yeah. the image I see whenever he walks on screen, and it's 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 not a good <laughs> image. <laughs> <laughs> but he actually isn't the only villain in the film. He also has uh, a partner, uh, Nancy Stork, played by Lee Garlington, and I actually had totally forgotten the twist with her, which is you know, her and him are both equally twisted. And they do a really good job of setting that up of how just completely warped they are. But then you get that moment where, ah, she's a cop. And when she's not with him, she looks like a completely normal functioning member of society. And as much as, you know, Brian is really selling his uh, Friday the 13th stare, she's more scary, in my opinion, because she's so easily able to just pass off being completely normal. Yes, the way she just slips into the system. I I like the way they introduce, you know, you know, these levels of corruption or these levels of tension within the police department and the way she just slips into, you know, being a normal in wearing a a, a person suit essentially is really terrifying. Well, I think the thing as well is if we if we incorporate into the idea that Andrew Robinson's Monty was supposed to be the cult leader. It also makes sense because I don't know what position she had before she gets assigned to them at near the end of the film, but it never quite made sense to me how she could have police reassigned. And they show you the the warehouse, for want of a better word, where all of the cult hang out and they smash a load of crowbars and axes together in weirdly rhythmic, soothing ways. But it leaves you with that question of how deep does this rabbit hole go like how high do these people have existence in organizations because if you do take that twist it changes all of the rest of the film because it's the guy that's assigned to hunt down the killer is in fact the leader of the killers and that would have been such an interesting storyline and it still works as it is because, like you say, it, it just ends up being uh, a, a film where you just essentially are highlighting the inefficiencies of the bureaucracy of constantly having red tape and paperwork. And it kind of reminded mm-hmm. me of the secondary Harry film, where as the film goes on, they're really trying to make this comparison that like the zombie squad and the killers really aren't that different. But much like in that secondary Harry film, the whole point of the film is, is that they are different. It's like, yes, they're all violent people but one set of them 
has a moral code that guides them and the other set is just basically killing people for fun. Right. Yeah. And you've got this additional moral code with the, the night stalker or the night slashers called, excuse me. <laughs> um, the, with the night slashers called with this kind of Darwinism where they're, you know, weeding out the weak and so only the strong survive. So I like, um, kind of introducing these competing moral codes in that way as well. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Stallone probably has one of his best introductions in any film in, in Cobra. I mean, you have that opening moment where the guy with the shotgun comes into the store, uh, can't aim to save his life and manages to <laughs> fire off shotgun rounds without hitting anyone. And then, you know, the police show up and Monty's there outside like, we do not want to hurt you. We will not hurt you. And it's like, he really doesn't look worried about being hurt, mate. And then they, they, they call Cobra and he shows up and he's got his boots and his jeans and he's got that coat and the sunglasses that he hardly ever takes off. And, you know, mm -hmm. he manages to get into the building without being seen or heard. And I, I just remember thinking, surely they could have done that without him. Like, this is a, this is a massive supermarket. Two regular police could have just got, gone in and had this over with. But anyway, that aside. I do love the fact that he then stops by the biggest Pepsi sponsorship I think I've ever seen. Oh my god. And it's like, he then takes a moment to drink the whole thing and then uses it as a distraction. <laughs> Again, I, there were probably others, but I think I'd just turn my brain off by that point. But it's like, in the next scene, he turns on a television and plays a literal entire commercial for Toys R Us before the film then gets back <laughs> to its actual plot. And I was just like... I really want to know how much both of those companies paid for this. Because this, that's just ridiculous. That's almost Power Rangers 2017 levels of Krispy Kreme advertising. <laughs> that was, I was so thrilled to see a Toys R Us commercial. It was such a throwback. But yeah, I, that level of product placement is incredible. Especially a toy company advertising during Cobra. Right? Which hopefully not a lot of very young children were watching this in the theater, I hope. <laughs> I know, I know. I did think that. It's like, this is a film that originally had like a rating that was basically going to guarantee it wouldn't be seen by anybody, and there's a Toys R Us <laughs> commercial in it. I mean, I can get the, the joke, but if that was paid for, you, I genuinely would love to know what the person that made that decision, who what they thought they mm. were going to gain from that, you know? <laughs> uh, maybe they knew it would have a, a life on television with people sneaking, you know, watching cobra behind their parents backs or something well yeah that that is very true i'm sure that, that that is definitely something that gets considered when these sorts of deals are made um we also get uh your your tagline appear here when stallone is doing his amazing negotiating skills with the uh <laughs> the hostage taker and he's like you know i'll, I'll blow everything up man it's like yeah go for it i don't shop here and then you get the tagline of you're a disease and I'm the cure. And it is funny because, like you say, it's all played dead serious and deadpan. And mm -hmm. it's 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 either going to make you laugh or it's going to make you roll your eyes. And I don't think either one is necessarily a bad reaction. But if if those lines don't make you go, ha, 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 this isn't the film for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I have several times in my notes where i just write this movie is so cool <laughs> like it's not le legitimately cool but it's i i like how 
I just, like you said, I like how straight they play it. Even the moments that are supposed to be funny are played straight, which I love. Yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because right after that, we get the scene where the journalists are all trying to interview them and they're all trying to like get them to back off. And then you have that one guy, because of course you do, who <laughs> is more interested in trying to figure out why the guy had to die that was, you know, quite openly killing people and he was trying to like say everybody has human rights and i i do genuinely like that moment where stallone just sorts of grabs him and basically shoves him into the dead body of the kid he killed and he's like why don't you tell that to his family because i i I get both points of view but in you know whenever stuff like this happens it's like it's it's real good to be the saying all of this stuff after the fact but when you're actually in the moment and there's someone shooting at you, I'm going to go out on a limb that you won't care about that person's rights at that exact moment in time, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, if somebody comes into the grocery store with a shotgun, even if he does have terrible aim, um, I'm I'm not worried about it at that moment. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll file that away under things to do after I survive. Yeah. (laughs) And like you say, I mean, well... Like I said originally, this film is so 80s. I love the bit that follows this because um, I was listening to one of my friends' podcasts the other day. They were talking about Lethal Weapon and they were saying, you know, you could tell it's an 80s film because the saxophone, the sexy saxophone comes in <laughs> and the the sexy saxophone is all throughout Cobra. I mean, the, the soundtrack to this film is just so caked in 80s nostalgia. It's ridiculous. Obviously, it wasn't nostalgia back then, but if you didn't know what era this film was from, watch it for 10 minutes. I guarantee you, you won't need anyone to tell you when this film was made. Yeah. <laughs> I grinned so hard when Miami Sound Machine started playing. I was like, oh, perfect. I, I I do really like the conversation that happens in the morgue as well, because, again, I think this is one of the scenes that was cut down. I think originally it was supposed to be a lot more graphic and maybe a bit a, a bit more heartless, shall we say in how everything was dealt with and the fact that there is quite clearly, you know, a, a cut up dead body on the table. And they just, it's there in the background if you look, but they don't really dwell on it. And from what I was reading a minute ago, it seemed like that was something that was going to be like front and center with the, you know, Cobra and the other guy, the sergeant, not really, not really caring. And uh, the conversation that happens between him and Monty is quite amusing given what happens later in the film because when they originally have this disagreement, I made a note that said it makes a change to have an argument that is purely professional. Like when Monty says that it isn't personal, I actually like it sounded legit. Like, you know, you have a different style to me. I get it. We're both cops, but we don't work well together because we do things completely differently. And that as like, oh, that makes a change. I thought this was going to be some long drawn out macho competition to see which one of them is better than the other and then disappointed as the film went on and it kind of devolved into that which ruined my point but for for the (laughs) briefest moment i was like oh that's nice people that actually know how to have disagreements in a workplace without it turning into personal insults (laughs) but alas (sighs) so what about yourself when you was watching this film was there any particular moments that really stuck out to you the montage with the robots um, oh yes i <laughs> that was quite a shock to me i it took me quite a while obviously the film doesn't give you a lot to go on it 
no idea what was happening. I was like, well, of course it's an 80s movie. There will be a robot. Because um, that's pretty standard for a lot of films of the era. But um, once I uh, got my bearings a bit and realized it was a fashion shoot, it was no less bonkers to me, but at least I knew where I was. <laughs> but I just... All of the editing choices in this movie to me are so fascinating, like the, those quick cuts with the car chases. And but that that montage in particular really stuck out to me as a highlight of the movie, just in terms of, oh, this is Cobra. This is what am I watching? This is fantastic. Yeah, that's the point in the film where it basically does turn into a full like music video for five minutes. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got um Cabretti and the sergeant going around trying to find out anything they know and then it flashes into like Ingrid's life and like she's a model it's showing like two very different worlds and then you've got Brian Thompson in the background slowly creeping ever closer towards where Ingrid works and yeah like you say that is such a it's such an interesting way of conveying all this information because you don't really get montages anymore like that but you definitely don't get them like this where like i say it's like you could tell that at the time mtv was like at the forefront of people's minds and it's like this is the cool thing to do guys no no dialogue <laughs> no sound effects just blaring 80s music and a bunch of people having facial reactions <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i did like that you know they're showing that you know cabretti is a man of the people like he can talk to people that somebody in a suit wouldn't be able to talk to he talks to people on the street and actually seems to be getting real answers even though he's not making any headway in finding the leader of this cult but i liked that they're contrasting you know quote unquote high class model versus this you know man of the people that you know they're clearly setting up this kind of odd couple dynamic between the two of them or kind of romeo and juliet thing where uptown girl and bad boy setting up this romance that would blossom later um you know i really liked the shots of you know cabretti on the street and um him interacting with people in his neighborhood like uh, the guys whose car he moves out of the way and he gets some some flack from them at first but then there's a mutual respect there afterwards which i thought was interesting um so i like those little moments i i'm i think I wonder if more moments like that were on the cutting room floor when they had to cut out a bunch of things um, just to get the time down, the running time down. Um, because I liked that. I, I'm i fascinated with this character. Like, I, I've seen some complaints that there's no character. There are no characters. There's no character development. But I just, I, I find Stallone really fascinating. Like, he's got a, a softness and a sensitivity to him that belies this, like, muscle-bound action hero persona and you see that in some of the moments where he's just joking around with people or talking to people and i like seeing that yeah no i agree i mean personally i think well i think a lot of the the actors that were in these sorts of action films often get a lot of slack for acting that isn't ever anywhere near as bad as people would have you believe it's just that mm -hmm. they're not making the type of high art films that critics like to watch is that is i'm gonna just say it and it's yeah. one of those things where stallone in particular does have a really good repertoire of other films where he's kind of proven multiple times at, at different stages of his career that yes he could act and he could do it pretty well and he made films that 
were way more intellectual and thought-provoking. And yeah, a couple of them are now misremembered as action films. Like, First Blood is often remembered as an action film, and then when people rewatch it, mm-hmm. there's action in it. But it's uh, it's much more of a commentary on the state of how people were treated you know, after the Vietnam War and what that kind of did to people. But, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorites of his is Copland, where he was, uh, you know, he got so much flack because he'd let himself go, in quotation marks, that he was like, no, the role is that of an overweight sheriff, because I wasn't supposed to be the action hero. I was supposed to be the everyman in an impossible situation. And I like it when those sorts of actors are willing to do that, whether it be a physical transformation or an emotional transformation or to just be vulnerable or to not have to, like, you know, have it in their contract that they can only be punched in the face three times throughout the running time of the film. You know, it's it's this that's sort of, that's just so ridiculous. And, yeah, you know, he made all the Rocky films, which, yes, there's a couple that are just big, cheesy, you know, spectacles. But the vast majority of them are also all really good acting pieces. And I agree with you. It, it comes through really, really well in this. And there's a scene, because uh, I'm going to go back and forwards here, but there's a scene that happens not long after the robot scene where Ingrid is in the hospital and they come and question her. And I absolutely love the way that they deal with asking her those questions because both Stallone and the guy that played his partner, Rennie Santoni, he played Sergeant yeah. Gonzalez, he did a really good job of doing what you just said, you know, she was in a bit of a state. She was in shock. She'd just been through a, a not so great moment, which I'm going to go back to in a second. But I absolutely love the way that he's so calm and gentle in his voice, which we've not, not heard at any point up until this moment. And then he's like, you know, we're a pair of really nice guys. We genuinely are policemen. And we're, you know, we're super nice. But unfortunately, we're going to have to ask you a lot of bad questions. And I love the way that he was able to deliver that dialogue because it could have been so easy to mess that up. But he managed to be gentle and comforting, but at the same time being like, this is happening and we've got to do it now, even though it's going to suck and you're not going to like having to sort of relive it or describe the situation to us. But, you know, we're here to help you. And I feel like that's a really difficult thing to do, but both of them managed to nail it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes back to them not playing by the book, so to speak, because they they know how to talk differently to different people. They know who needs a soft approach, who doesn't need a soft approach. And when you're dealing with victims um, or people who, who aren't accustomed to dealing with the police, you have to take a different approach than people who are. Um, and yeah, I just I like those little character moments. I I I this is not, you know, a character-based drama or a you know an acting centerpiece or showcase but i still think that there are little moments that you can really appreciate because you know stallone is a good actor and i there were moments where i really really liked the choices he was making even if they were or especially if they were odd choices sometimes the odd choice is the right choice um it makes the movie more interesting or it services the character even if the point of this movie is not Cobra as a character, but you know some of the action set pieces and the plot. But I still think he did a really good job of making some interesting choices, and that's that's always what I'm looking for is when people make interesting choices. Yeah, I 
I feel like the the back and forth between him and Gonzalez works really well, whether it be them just ribbing on each other or whether it's like their obsession with talking about everything through food, whether or not it's, <laughs> you know, it's like pizza. What are you going to put your pizza? Are you eating healthy food? You're, you've had too much sugar. You know, like you said, all of that makes them feel like real people in a way that a lot of movie cops don't end up feeling like real people. And Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's kind of a depressing sentence I'm about to say, but I almost feel like people that work in this industry and also healthcare's industry as someone that worked in healthcare, um, they could do a lot with watching that scene on how to treat someone who this isn't day to day for them. You know, uh, I, I've had this conversation with so many people who have worked in these industries for a very long time and have just started which is that for us, for the people that have to live through this stuff every single day, it's 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 exactly that. It's a day-to-day thing that we've gotten accustomed to and used to, and we'll probably make jokes about. But for the person in the room, whether it be a, a simple surgery, or whether it's a traumatic event, whether it's an accident, whether it's cosmetic, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, whether it's a simple thing, crime that they're reporting, for them, it's a probably a once in a lifetime moment, hopefully, and it's very scary for them to have to go through. And I feel like too many people get lost in that. Well, this is nothing, you know. Like you shouldn't be this fussed about it. It's like, yeah, but that's because you deal with this every day. This is your life. It's not theirs. And I, I, I personally really enjoyed this. Those scenes where they were knowing how to talk to people because it's such a skill that people don't value in my opinion a hundred percent yeah because like you said it's this is a hopefully something that will only happen to this person once this is probably the worst day of their life whereas it's just another tuesday for them Um, and being able to recognize that and hold on to their humanity is such a skill and such an important one a hundred percent but like i said i do want to go back a little bit and also give uh bridget some some props because the scene that precedes her being in the hospital is one where she is found by Brian and and the boys who try to off her because she can potentially identify him. But there's a couple of reasons why I wanted to really highlight this scene. Number one is that, oh my god, the security guard was actually good at his job. (laughs) And, you know, that whole sequence just is so good. I mean, Brian and his crew come out and they've got you know, two people that they run into that just get slaughtered, essentially, right off the bat while they're trying to get to Ingrid. And then she runs into the security guard. He immediately goes into action hero mode, pulls out his gun, almost like nails them all, and then somehow manages to shoot through the windshield of the van fast approaching him, but not hit anyone, even though they show you that the bullets go through. (laughs) And then the stunt bit that happens immediately after that genuinely made me jump because that van just smashes into him and there's no cuts and i was like what just happened (laughs) right that was scarily Uh, good so good so good i was so impressed with that i i really made note of that why when i was taking a lot of notes i think i just put whoa at that moment (laughs) because i was so shocked um and impressed by it it was that's a really good set piece and i'm with you i um the trope of security guards being bumbling idiots who don't know how to do anything 
um, can get tiresome if you see it enough. So it was refreshing that he just jumped into doing what he was trained to do, trying to protect her and doing it well, even though he did um, meet a very, very bad end. <laughs> yeah, I know. And the thing is, is I feel like this is something that gets missed sometimes, but because he did do such a good job, because they let him actually be good at his job and actually did something when he was then killed it had way more impact i genuinely went oh you know like i felt bad because he was now gone whereas if he just Mm -hmm. like you say in a hundred other films he'd have just wandered out not reacted not done anything and just been like what's going on here and then immediately (laughs) died you know it would have been like oh great you were a lot of help but because they did the opposite (laughs) it genuinely makes you go damn it when he dies which is a you know a nice little touch but also yeah i have seen a hundred well probably a lot more than a hundred but in a lot of these sorts of films and definitely in horror films and you've seen more than me but an attractive blonde lady in a horror film screaming her head off because something bad has just happened i've seen that once or twice over my film watching days (laughs) and i've got to say this might be one of my favorite versions of that I've ever seen. I don't know how much of it is makeup or effects, but Bridget looks terrified in a way that a lot of actresses just don't. And the way she shakes, the way she doesn't like screech her head off like an owl, and the, the sweat that's just pouring off of her, and she actually looks like, you know, the, the makeup's running, her hair is frizzy, she's hiding under, you know, under that little wherever she's hiding. And I don't know what it is, but she sold that in a way that a lot of people don't. Like, anyone can scream, anybody can run away and shout help and no, but she made it look like she was actually terrified of Brian Thompson, which isn't that hard considering his size, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, I, I do feel like she doesn't get enough props because she does play her character well, even though she may not have a massive amount to do. What she is given, she does very well, I think. No, I agree 100%. And yeah, as you say, I, I've seen more than my share of women in peril in movies. <laughs> um, and I thought she did a great job of selling. It, it felt very immediate, very visceral. Like I was legitimately scared for her. Like I knew she was the 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 starring actress. So I didn't think she was going to die in that moment. But I was still really scared for her. It was I like the way it was shot. I like how real everything felt and as you say like the hair and the makeup like she looks like she's been to hell and back and she's still not sure she's gonna make it back um so i really loved that that aspect of it because she she sells the hell out of it and i again i was just legitimately scared for her at more than one point in the movie yeah yeah well see this is the part where my brain went oh they're really like going after horror films with this film because again I, i i probably wouldn't have got that at all the first time i watched it the following sequence that again features Brian Thompson coming for her head, again it just nails down that whole horror film aesthetic. Like I could totally buy that this is in fact not an action film. This is a horror film where Brian Thompson is the slasher, which he literally is. Um, and you know it's almost like instead of this being an action film that has horror elements, there's an awful lot of scenes that feel like I'm watching a horror film. But then Sylvester Stallone kicks down the door and says, hey, you know, it's like it it, it (laughs) almost flips it on its head. Like when he's stalking through the hospital and he kills that old lady 
and then he kills the nurse, which is brutal the way he does it and like muffles her. Mm -hmm. And then he would have killed Ingrid as well if it wasn't for luck that she just happened to have gone to the bathroom. And then he's like breaking down the door and she's screaming her head off. And I, I did sort of sit there going, this feels like I'm watching like Friday the 13th or, you know, <laughs> any number of old school uh, horror films that was all around about the mid 80s. And I do mm -hmm. have to wonder how much of that was being influenced by the popularity of those types of films at the time. Yeah, because there are some really classic horror set pieces or horror movies set in hospitals, you know, Halloween 2, the famous jump scare in The Exorcist 3. Um, I I think that's, uh, I'm not going to say it's better than Exorcist 3 or Halloween 2, but I think it's uh, better done than some horror movies I've seen set in hospitals for sure, especially that overhead shot of her in the bathroom as uh, Brian Thompson is trying to get in with that handheld batleth or whatever that weapon is it's terrifying looking with the blade and the kind of the springs yeah, yeah, and everything yeah. and she's stuck she can't get into the storage room and she can't you know she's got the maniac on one end and she's stuck in it that overhead shot is really terrifying uh but yeah as you say there's so there are so many horror elements in this that i i would buy it as horror action or action horror i think the ending is the only thing that lends it strictly as an action film rather than a horror film because if you end this movie differently it's straight up horror yeah yeah no 100 percent. i mean this is the thing like i i because the next thing that happens is obviously she escapes and she does again this would kind of also go against it being a horror film but she then does a really smart thing which is pull the fire alarm and that making the right and smart choices don't normally go hand in hand with horror movie characters. <laughs> True. But I, I, I'm, you know, again, just because I've worked in several hospitals, my brain went, that was a really smart decision for you. Like, well done. I'm glad you lived. But my God, you have no idea how much work that just made for all the staff in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Having actually been through a proper fire alarm going off, I remember, oh. I do never want to, never want to do that again. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> but um yeah, I cut out a few sequences, you know, I think everything that happens sort of after that is just gold because you get everybody reassigned like uh the partner Gonzalez goes back to the office and then you find out it's not real and then it all just kicks off. It all just goes for a good 20 minutes where a couple of killers go after Cabretti at his home, which goes about as well as you'd expect it would for them. Uh, you know, you have both of the cops racing back to the hospital, which syncs up with the scene we were just talking about. And then you get the sequence the following day where they're trying to move her. And it just leads to one of the longest car chase sequences that I've seen for a while in, in rewatches terms. And again, I'd just forgotten how hard this film goes. I mean, the stunt work in this film is phenomenal. I mean, we already talked about the, the guy that gets squashed by a van, but there's a, there's a high fall kill later in the film that, you know, Stallone mm. literally just kicks the guy off and he falls. And <laughs> that might have been the guy, actually, that came at him in his home. But anyway, and then all of the car work with all of the cars being smashed, because there's so uh -huh. many cars involved in, in that sequence. And obviously, Stallone's car, the Mercury, it's not exactly a um, an easy car to replicate. I know they built two stunt <laughs> cars for, the, for these scenes, but honestly, I mean... It does surprise me that we don't hear about the the driving scene in Cobra in the same way that we hear about 
the driving scene in Bullet or the driving scene in Ronin or you know it's like th- there's so many mm-hmm. iconic car sequences and like Cobra has such a unique car and a pretty decent action sequence it does surprise me it doesn't get talked about more I know especially the 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 hilly uh bridges that sequence where they're kind of it's almost like they're um it's like dune buggies like they're jumping up and down on those hills and kind of coming smashing down chasing each other I the whole time I was like holding my breath during that car chase and I couldn't quite believe some of the stunts they were going for especially as you said with that classic car I I knew it wasn't actually Stallone's car that they were you know banging up like that but still it's um it's so striking seeing and it was really smart to keep the camera level and just see the cars kind of bob up and down as they're chasing each other because it adds that extra element of tension as the cars are coming towards you um i i really loved a lot of the stunts we'll get to the end later i there were some stunts that surprised me at the end as well but uh yeah i loved that car chase yeah no i mean some of the the jumps like you were just saying were great because again once upon a time i would have not been as impressed by them as i am now because again it's one of those things that when you just watch it you go oh the car kind of jumped a little bit and landed but in reality cars don't do that you know you have to factor in the weight of the cars and to try and keep everything balanced because otherwise all that will happen is it just smashes into the front of the car and flops over right so (laughs) now whenever i i look at car scenes in an entirely different way and as soon as they start you know leaving the wheels off the ground i'm sort of like okay i'm impressed this this actually takes quite a lot of work to do but it it did make (laughs) me chuckle because i even made a note that like as cool as this is he is literally driving the key witness he's protecting directly (laughs) into harm's way where the bullets are coming at them and his car is like i don't know if it's bulletproof if it's like reinforced armor or if he had it blessed by the gods but it just does not want to (laughs) break up until the final moment where his car goes flying. But again, both him and uh, Ingrid are completely fine. They just like jump out of the car like nothing happens. So I don't know what that car's made of, but could we have go back to that, please? Right. <laughs> well, the, as the license plate says, it's an awesome 50. So it's something special is going on with that car. It, do, it does kind of remind me of a story that my granddad told me, you know, because I, I think I asked him, you know, about old cars. And he was like, well, there was an old like Range Rover that uh, one of our neighbors had. And yeah, and he, I was like, what? And he went, well, these days they make cars designed to sort of have crumple points and, and cars are made of pretty weak materials, relatively speaking. But this was back in the day when cars were made out of like steel. And it was like, you know, his brakes failed and he was coming down a hill and he met the car, he met a house at the end of the road and the house lost. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe that's why they stopped making cars like that. And he was like, yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and then we've already kind of talked about the the scene between Cabretti and, and Monty, but I do really like that scene, as I've already said. Uh, a Andrew Robertson's acting is just fantastic. I don't think I've ever mm-hmm. not liked him in something. But also, mm-hmm. you know, you've got all of these different sort of cops all trying to weigh in, lay blame, deflect. You know, it's just a perfect. It matches the commentary that the film is trying to go for perfectly well of how everybody that should be the you know the people trying to make you feel safe 
just aren't really getting anywhere. They're just spinning their wheels, achieving nothing. And then, um, you know, that's literally followed up with uh, uh, Ingrid having that sort of conversation in the car where she's like, I don't understand why the cops can't just put the bad guys away. And then Stallone's is like, well, you know, tell it to the judge because we put them away and then they let them out. Like it's that simple. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's there's a very 80s macho conservatism to it. Like, well, if we just let the good cops, you know, do all the policing and all the judge and jury and everything, we'd have a much better society. I, you know, I get uh, some criticisms of it as like a, a fascist fantasy or things like that. And, you know, if you dig deep into the politics of the movie, um, it can be troublesome, but this is one of those movies where I just have so much fun with it. And I, I do appreciate that they were trying to get into, you know, the dangers of red tape and the dangers of, you know, ineffectual policing or corrupt policing. I get that they're going for more. Um, it's not quite so black and white, but, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, this is just a very fun movie to me. <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think, that's how I choose to to watch it. As I said, I I feel like this film accidentally nailed the tone of what Judge Dredd should have been, and you know mm -hmm. all of these sorts of scenes just kind of tell me that if they if they'd made Dredd with this same energy, that would have been perfect because Dredd yes. is you know Dredd is satirical, which is something I feel a lot of people miss. So it's supposed mm -hmm. to be over the top with its. You know, these sorts of scenes should be like ordinary, like nothing out of the ordinary. And, mm -hmm. you know, seeing it in Cobra works too, because that's how I view Cobra as well. Like, I don't take it seriously and it just works for me on that level. And it feels like an extension of like the original Dirty Harry, like that's clearly his idol. And, you know, everybody calls him like a throwback to a different, different type of man. And then they complete that by, you know, revealing that his first name is Mariam. And my brain immediately went, ah, Johnny Cash, a boy named Sue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they, they made me laugh again and took me out of it by the fact that they've literally just had a car chase scene. She's had multiple people try and kill her. But when she gets in the pickup truck, she decides to roll the window all the way down and stick her arm out. And I'm like, it's a good <laughs> thing people with guns aren't trying to kill you, love. <laughs> but yeah. So we get to sort of closer to the end now, and uh, we we have Officer Nancy assigned to them, and they kind of clock straight away that something's not right with her. And I like the fact that they, you know, one of the, the best sequences in terms of her goes for me is when Stallone is flirting with Bridget's character, but in the background, he's clocking that she's making a phone call. And I like how they show that he is quite an intelligent character even if he's a very quiet character, he doesn't have to boast about it like some of the other cops in the film do. And then that comes back later on where he's like, you know, why are you using a payphone? And she's like, oh, the one in my room is out of order. And yeah, they they don't really address whether or not he buys that because, you know, the next morning it all kicks off anyway. But I do, I do like the way they kind of built up to that moment where he is not just taking her at face value because he is very much aware that there is some sort of a mole. And she's not exactly suspicious by just making phone calls but at the same time people aren't supposed to know where they are by default 
So I do, I do like the way they kind of just show that rather than, you know, telling you that, which I feel like is how they would do it today. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I was saying earlier about Stallone, like there's, there's such an intelligence to him, you know, just, just behind his eyes, you can tell that, um, he's constantly like surveying his surroundings, taking everything in. So he doesn't have to do much to let you know that he knows what's happening, even when people are trying to be sneaky or, um, trying to slip under the radar. Um, and I like that, you know, this movie wouldn't work if Cabretti were just about brute force. You know, he, he actually understands what's going on. He understands, uh, how to talk to people, how to approach people, how to, you know, he, he's the first one to say, you know, there are multiple, the night slasher is not one person. It is multiple people. He, he's, um, in terms of investigation, he's the best cop that we see in the movie, you know, and just in terms of deducing things and figuring things out. Um, so I like that they, that Stallone like takes advantage of, you know, his own innate intelligence, um, in like sussing out even how to talk to Ingrid and, um, how to, um, multitask his attention, if that makes sense. Like, as you were saying, like he's flirting with her and side-eyeing the mountain of ketchup she's putting on her French fries at the same time that he's like watching everybody in that diner. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's the sort of physical acting that I think a lot of people take for granted as being easy, but a lot of the time physical acting and conveying what you're thinking without words is a lot harder than reading a page of dialogue. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Some of my favorite um, like recent acting moments have been like, you know, either in a monologue, what the actor was doing physically with their eyes or moving their head like the actor's physicality i don't think we talk about enough and i think stallone is so in touch with his physicality um not just as like a performing stunts or as an athlete um but just in small gestures too they make a big difference yeah yeah and i mean you know it, it continues in the next scene where they get into their uh their rooms because you know he puts that gun together and it's a it's a cool moment in and of itself, just seeing him assemble that like like custom gun with the laser sight, and then obviously that in turn leads into Ingrid basically just being like, "Hey, we're an '80s movie and we're an attractive couple. Get over here for our sex scene." <laughs> Which I, I was actually surprised wasn't like particularly pronounced or uh, like you know spent five minutes on in a montage music video style. Mm, so right, I, I kind yeah. of almost have to give it some props for that because. Sex in movies doesn't bother me, but it, it, considering when this was made and what a lot of other films were like at the time, it really does stand out as being different by not having a lot of it. Absolutely. I was expecting a lot more sexy sex, for sure. But yeah, like you, I was pleasantly surprised that they didn't. It wasn't, uh, the film doesn't shy away from gratuitous violence, but it shies away from gratuitous nudity, which was refreshing. <laughs> it, it does kind of make me wonder, though, like after the fact of, how much of that was because this time it wasn't just the very attractive girl that Stallone got to act with. It was the very attractive woman that he was married to. So he didn't, he right. didn't want everybody else to, to see, see things. And it's like, Oh, it's a bit different now. It's someone you care about. Ace Sly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point. I wondered the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that then leads to the morning. And then at this point, the film basically turns into a, a siege movie. Where like a hundred people show up to essentially siege two houses, which is great. And again, looking back on it, 
I can see why this film might have like put some people off because if you compare it to uh, oh, a, a, either of the Rambo sequels or like a Schwarzenegger's Commando type thing where there's dozens of guys being gunned down and there's bullets flying everywhere. This doesn't actually do that, surprisingly. Stallone actually is very tactical and very reserved with how he shoots and when he shoots. He only fires controlled bursts of that gun and every time he shoots, someone dies, which is very unusual for an 80s action scene <laughs> and I, I i feel like it's actually gotten better with age like this whole last segment has actually aged really well in my opinion yeah absolutely yeah it's very very tight very lean like it's not the the a lot of people have that 80s action stereotype of someone just shooting two machine guns and screaming and just spraying bullets for like two solid minutes and shooting indiscriminately but you know it's a good point that he he's very tactical he's very controlled and again very smart in how he's going about it yeah and it also you know the the stunt guys again do a great job of flying off of their bikes as they get shot <laughs> and several of them do their kamikaze rolls off of whatever it is that they're doing and then you get my one of my other like highlight stunt moments which is uh the guy jumps onto the pickup truck, fights Stallone's stunt double, and then gets thrown over. And then he ends up getting run over by the pickup. And obviously, I'm 99% confident that that wasn't a real human. That was very clever editing. Right. But it, it's very, very clever editing. Like, it looks super good and still holds up. And it, again, just like the, the other guy, it made me sort of go, ooh, in a good way. So... That's that's what you want. Like when you watch these sorts of scenes, in my opinion, you want that visceral reaction. Exactly. You want to have to wince because you, you feel it in your bones and you feel it in your skin when something happens to these people or when it happens to a dummy, like you want to feel it yourself. I, I have a feeling I know what one of them is, but you said that there were stunts at the end that you wanted to talk about. So we're kind of at the end now. So, so go nuts. <laughs> um, I was thinking specifically... Uh, Brian Thompson ah. on a meat hook. <laughs> I, I had a feeling <laughs> well, that's a meat what hook you in meant. the factory, but yeah, because <laughs> you know, as a as a fan of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and movies like that, I I immediately just my jaw dropped when you know he's thrown onto a hook and then incinerated in the spire. Um, it was even more gruesome than I was expecting, though it was pretty funny given that he had just told Stallone, you know, you're not going to shoot me, you're not going to kill me, you're a cop, you have rules to follow. And then he gets thrown on a hook and incinerated um, as a just a punctuation mark to the I'm not that kind of cop kind of thing. Um, yeah. But just that stunt, uh, that that whole sequence in the the factory or the foundry or whatever that, that building is with, you know, Stallone lighting people on fire. Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea. No idea what that factory is. Like, I have genuinely got zero clue what that building <laughs> is actually used for and why everything is turned on, but there seems to be nobody in there. Right. Because <laughs> they knew Cobra was coming. Yeah. Yeah. He called ahead. Because <laughs> it is good, though, because, like, you get this great transition because they end up running into, into the fields of, like, you know, like a mm -hmm. farmer's field. And then it, it somehow just random factory appears that has like everything you could possibly want to kill people with creatively in it. <laughs> and, you know, they again, they don't just resort to, to more gunfights. It suddenly it turns into almost a reverse horror film where now Stallone is the one hunting them and killing them in 
not particularly nice ways. I mean, he gets someone with a grenade trap and then, you know, he literally gets someone to walk into flames and turn and lights them up on fire. And then, mm-hmm. you know, my favorite one, because it's been done uh, many, many times and you can recreate it in video games where, you know, he leaves his laser pointer gun on the side. And then when someone goes up to it, thinking that he's going to get the drop on him, he comes up behind them and just knifes him in the back. And again, it just shows that he he is allegedly a cop, but it feels like I'm watching someone that uh, was in the special forces, not a guy that's supposedly a, a, a lieutenant in the police force. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the other thing as well is, I don't know if this is a, just a me thing, but his two like one-liners do not work for me at all here. And, you know, he the first one is that guy that carries the sniper rifle, which he, again, uh, sets on fire and kills with a match, which is awesome. I really like that. But his, like, finishing line is, you have the right to remain silent. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. And then when you get that confrontation between Thompson and, and Stallone, he's like, well, where the law stops, I start. And I'm like, okay, but your name's Cobra. Like, I almost feel like they, these were like, we're, we're going to write this here and then we're going to come back and tighten these lines up. And then they just never did. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do agree with you, though. That, that end sequence is great. I mean, the lighting, the way they, the shadows mm. just move around both men as they're trying to, like, hunt each other works so mm-hmm. perfectly. And again, the other thing that uh, I I really, really appreciated because again i couldn't remember how brian died because I, I i genuinely didn't remember the ending at all and as soon as i saw like he's standing there perfectly in frame and i could see this moving object behind him and i went it's a hook isn't it and as soon as that hook <laughs> moved past him i was like that's how you're gonna die and then it, it moved <laughs> past him again to make sure if you you know if you blinked then you missed it it's like mm-hmm. no here's a second chance to know you know, we're setting up the scenery and the geography of what's going to happen as they fight and where he's going to go. And again, that's smart filmmaking. I like that. And, you know, we haven't really mentioned her, but Nancy comes and gets killed really easily in this bit. Um, You know, she betrays them, obviously, and uh, she joins the hunt against them, but she does literally nothing. That was the only <laughs> disappointing bit about the whole sequence is she contributes nothing apart from... Mm-hmm. After you think she's already dead, she, uh, like any good horror villain, reveals that she was still kicking and jumps Stallone as he's about to shoot Brian. But again, mm-hmm. doesn't really achieve anything other than getting shot by Brian. And then they get to have their uh, melee fight, which again, it was really good. You had a moment where Stallone uses a chain, which is quite funny because it feels like a practice fight for his uh, bout with Van Damme many years later. They do a little bit of a fist fight and then they do the tried and tested formula of one man has a knife, but both men are going to just try and basically do an arm wrestle to see which one's going to grab the knife. Right. <laughs> and then, like you say, you get the uh, the hook shot and then watching a poor guy get completely obliterated by like six streams of fire. Right. And then right at the very end, he punches out Monty, who tries to like say no hard feelings after just not apologizing to him and still calling him a reckless idiot that just kills people for sheer enjoyment of it. Yeah, I still I would I would like to see the version uh where that big twist comes up with Monty. 
you know, I'm, I'm with you on that, but, um, I, I do love the, the very end where he just steals a motorcycle from, you know, what do they care? They're dead. He steals one of the cult members' motorcycles and hops on with Ingrid and rides off into the sunset with her. I'm th- that, you know, tweak a few things at the end and it's a horror movie, but that makes it like the perfect action movie ender. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, I literally made a note that's like, he rides off into the sunset on a motorbike with a blonde supermodel wrapped around him. It's like, it's, <laughs> could he, you know, I don't even know what I would personally add to try and make that character any more cool than he already looked, you know? <laughs> it's just one of those things where that, you know, this is definitely Stallone at like, what is the idea for this character? He's the coolest guy on the planet and he's really good at what he does. Okay, we can make that work. Done. Berlin. Yeah, exactly. So we have kind of talked pretty much through majority of the film itself, but was there any like themes or specific angles that you wanted to offer insight or commentary on as this was a first time watch? Obviously, like you said, you're more familiar with horror films than me. No, I just again, I was really obsessed with the cinematography, Um, really surprising angles and really, you know, I said earlier that it every shot feels like they said what is the coolest way to achieve this shot like the there's a scene where they're all at police headquarters and the camera just never stops moving while they're having this conversation um with you know monty and the captain and cabretti and um his partner gonzalez they're all having a they're talking about it and the camera just never stops moving it's like like an animal in a cage just pacing around and i just really liked how tense and dynamic uh, they made the scene when it could have been not boring, but it's just so much more interesting when the camera's moving like that. And just, you mentioned the shadows in that factory scene, but there are so many moments when they have shadows on characters' faces that I just thought were really lovely shots. Um, I just, I think putting that much care into make the movie look striking and look stylish, um, I think is one reason I appreciated it so much. I mean, there are, um, I, I responded a lot to the kind of slasher angle and I responded a lot to just how odd and unexpected the movie was because there were a lot of things I was not expecting, but I, I just, a lot of my notes are just about different shots and how much I appreciated, you know, instead of just a static wide angle shot where we're watching people talk, the camera's moving or we're, you know, kind of a canted angle. Um, but it didn't, to me, uh, it doesn't feel uh, gratuitous or um, like it's not cohesive or like it's just style for style's sake. It just I just thought it made the movie better and made it more interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I, I did feel the same way. I'm not the best guy to sit here and talk about camera angles and shot composition and color choices with. But I do understand most of it. Uh, it's just not something I ever tend to talk about, which I, I should talk about it more. But I will agree with you that this particular film really did kind of make me notice the way in which the camera moved, where it was placed, stood out to me a lot more than I feel like a lot of films of this era do. And the interesting thing is, is that the 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 individual that did it, uh, the director of photography, Rick Waite, I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, he worked on a number of other films that I feel like a lot of people would say the same things too. Like he was on 
48 Hours, and he did Red Dawn, and he would uh, allegedly he's uh, uncredited on Rambo Three, but he did like March for Death and Out for Justice, which not the best like actor, but the films look good. <laughs> and you know, there's there's quite mm-hmm. a few films that when I've looked through his cinematog uh, his cinematography, looked through his like record of what he's worked on. Uh, there's also a lot of TV stuff, but the actual like films he's done, I'm like, oh, I like that one. Oh, I like that one. Oh, okay. It's mm-hmm. like he did Rapid Fire as well <laughs> with Brandon Lee. And again, um, it's when you you sort of look into this stuff and you go, oh yeah, there's there's something that all these films have in common. It's the person that worked on all the cinematography. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, um, I I couldn't, you know. I I feel like I'm kind of apologizing for liking this movie so much, which I know is silly. Um, it's very silly on this I don't... show. <laughs> very true. Yeah. Um. But I just again, I was just struck with how how good it looked, how much I responded to, you know. Um. Just again, interesting choices, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera. Like always choosing the interesting shot and always. Um, making things very dynamic, even when it's just a bunch of cops having a conversation. Um, the way Ingrid is shot, we were talking about how much she sells being scared, but the way she's shot and again, the shadows on her face or screeching away from when she witnesses, uh, the cult killing people. Um, I just, I'd, I'd like to see the longer cut just because I want to see more shots like that. I just, I really like the way this movie looks in addition to, some of the um the impressive action sequences or like the humor i i really like um there are just a few moments where stallone just has the slightest smile um and i i'm just kind of obsessed with those moments like this deadpan tone throughout that i really liked yeah do you know what's sorry i i i agree with everything you just said but also there were two things that I was that I read a minute ago, and now I'm sort of like I really do agree with you that I I really want to know like what the other version of this film looked like because apparently the original working title for this film when it w- it had its first edit was actually Corn on the Cobra because <laughs> yeah, right because apparently the cult first targeted the North American agricultural industry before moving on to vulnerable women and this part of the story didn't make the final cut so the film was renamed but that kind of makes the fact that it ends where it ends make a bit more sense because you know that farm was a lemonary and fun fact this film apparently has the most lemons in any one take of any film ever so you could do with that information what you will um but i feel like it it really does sound to me like there was way more involved in in terms of what the cult was aiming to do because they do kind of feel like undercooked i think is the way i would describe them like they go on and on about this new world and right at the very end you do get this whole you know the strong must take out the weak so that the strong can survive and that the race can get stronger but that's literally like a minute of dialogue at the very end of the film throughout the rest of the film they they, you know they, they have no agenda that you are aware of now in my mind from the horror aspect of things i actually think that that works because 
we the audience know nothing about them so there's nothing that can take away their scariness there's nothing that can humanize them there's nothing that can make them not feel like the monsters that they are in the film but at mm -hmm. the same time i kind of want to know what they were actually all about and what their actual plan was was it just to kill people forever because um i don't really get what their end goal was if that makes sense <laughs> No, I'm with you because I, it felt like they were having like religious rituals with those moments where they were kind of clanking the axes together and everything. Yeah. And I wanted just a little bit of that and just a little connective tissue between our opening, you know, gunman in the supermarket. Um, and wh why he wanted to talk to the TV cameras. He kept asking for TV cameras. I want to know what the message was, uh, that he wanted to get out, but we, you know, I guess the point is it doesn't matter what the message is because it would have been um he's crazy and it doesn't matter, which was Cobra's uh stance on things. Um but I you know, it even the sequences themselves, some of the action sequences, it feels like so much is left on the cutting room floor that it feels like there's a lot of which I think is another reason I kind of like it. I'm kind of fascinated putting the pieces together trying to figure out what movie we haven't seen I, I it's just it's such an interesting movie and i um like seeing these little glimpses of what else is going on that we haven't seen yet i think is really fascinating no i 100 percent agree uh, you know that alternate version of the film would be even if even if there's just like a script out there if somebody knows please mm -hmm. do get in touch <laughs> and tell me and then i shall share it with jess and we shall read it yes. but <laughs> Again, I just keep I I'm just reading stuff. I mean, I've I read most of it beforehand, and, and a lot of it is just like oh, it's just usual like film stuff. I mean, there's some interesting stuff in there, but we'd be here all day. But there is just one thing that stood out to me that just made me laugh, which apparently Al Leong, who is everybody's favorite evil henchman in a lot of '80s films, was initially cast as one of the main like uh, cult members. But apparently his entire like character was essentially eliminated because a group protested about the casting of Asians just being villains in films at the time, which I find really weird because well, I could definitely think of films after 1986 that feature Asians as villains and they're pretty beloved roles, you know, that seems like such a weird mm. hill to die on. Like, they were specifically protesting Cobra, or just in general? I think it was in general, and oh, okay. <laughs> I, I guess they must have, you know, for whatever reason, the producers of the film just decided to acquiesce and get out of the firing line, maybe. I, I have no idea. Gotcha. I was going to say, there. I'm surprised that that's the one thing people protested about Cobra as violent as it is. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, the trivia page is literally full of paragraphs of information of stuff that was cut or stuff that was planned that wasn't made i mean there's so much stuff that that clearly you know didn't get anywhere i mean you know one thing that we probably that we didn't mention that re realistically doesn't matter is this film was based on a novel called fair game um but i'm pretty confident that the uh the term loosely needs to be in that sentence because <laughs> I don't think there was actually that much similarity between the book and the, the actual film of Cobra. It made funnier right. by the fact that Fair Game was actually made into another film in 1995 called Fair Game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one was a mainstay of uh, trailers on VHS tapes I watched because I remember seeing Cindy Crawford on all of the VHS movies I watched. Ah. <laughs> 
Right, well, I would say that that is probably this conversation drawn to a close. <laughs> Have you enjoyed talking about Cobra? Absolutely. I am so excited that I finally watched it, and I will watch it many times in the future, I'm sure, and I've had a blast talking about it. Well, thank you for uh, coming on and agreeing to talk about it. It's, like I said, I... I, I like having people on that we haven't had before. Not that I don't like having recurring guests. They're nice too. But it's always nice to, you know, get other people's opinions on films. Like that was one of the, well, it still is, one of the driving forces of the podcast is get conversations with different people who have different points of views so that people listening can get very different viewpoints on how they think about films. Because... If you only have the same handful of people, you'll just end up getting the same opinions, just regurgitating in different ways. <laughs> At least that's how I feel. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, especially someone who's not as well versed. You know, since this was a first time watch for me, I really appreciate you letting me talk about it. Hey, I love first time watches. If if, if I've got more I'll, uh, that you haven't seen, I'll send them your way and use, use me as an excuse to finally get, okay. get them off the list. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> All right, I'm going to hand you over to the me of the future now, and he will hopefully have his life together more than I do and tell you what's coming next. All right, that's it. That's the end. I hope you enjoyed it, because I haven't listened to this or edited it, whereas normally I would have when I do this outro. So this is kind of actually probably going to be where you notice more that I haven't obviously done this yet. Uh, normally, I do the outro after I've edited it so that I can give you any information that I missed, or if there was a mistake, I can correct it, or etc, etc, etc. But I can't do that, so I'm just going to have to trust that what we said works. Which, in fairness, I kind of had to do with the Jean Pouli episode anyway, for completely different reasons. So, no one noticed, so fingers crossed, it's there's no problems here either. Anyway, as for what's next, uh, we are finally leaving the 80s behind, for now at least, and we are going to be going to the wonderful, wonderful year of... 2003 and it's going to be a non-hollywood film and in my opinion as you'll hear us discuss next week kind of a game changer and a trendsetter for quite some time you may remember a conversation that i've had with a couple of people talking about the through line of how the action film has changed where it started where it's going and we were talking about styles of martial arts with the art school dropouts and we were talking about how certain films basically define how a big subsection of films are going to produce their fight choreography, how they're going to shoot stuff. And I personally think this is one that kind of gets overlooked a little bit now because it is the absolute monstrosity. Let's be honest, he was an absolute powerhouse when people saw him for the first time. No one really knew what to make of it. Tony Ja in Ong Bak the Thai warrior. I'm very excited for you to hear this conversation and I am definitely going to be uh, following this up with, uh, not straight away, but I will be following it up with the other big Tony Jaa film that everybody saw, which was The Protector. And I am super excited to finally be talking about the Muay Thai King because honestly, it was so much fun revisiting this film and my guest for next week as well made this one even more exciting for me because it's actually somebody that I have been following for a very, very long time in the podcast space. This is somebody that also covers 
martial arts films, action films, and if you are unfamiliar with his show, I would be very surprised if you listen to this show. But I am lucky enough to be talking about Ong Bak with Jeff Vita, the host of the Kung Fu Drive-In podcast, and he has been doing this for friggin' years, man. I listened to this guy long before I even thought about, you know, doing an action film podcast, long before most of my friends that have been on the show have been doing podcasts, and I was super excited that not only was he familiar with my show, that he wanted to come on and chat with me. So I hope you're excited for that one. He and I really, really vibed over on back, and I'm excited for you to hear it. But that is going to be it for this one, guys. Thank you very much for sticking with me to the end, as always. And I shall see you next time for Ong Back. On the action!